Good morning. If you'll please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be reading from Galatians 2.16. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seat backs of the chair in front of you, and it's on page 566. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep these that you uh, get out of these seats. And make sure I'll wait for you to get there. Galatians 2.16. And it reads, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Thus says the reading of God's word. Amen. Father, thank you um, for your promise um, that when your word goes forth, it will accomplish what you've purposed for it. And so we hold tightly to that promise this morning. And uh, God, we confess that we need your help. Lord, I confess that I need your help um, to speak the words that you would say to your bride, to your church. And Father, we all need help to have ears to hear what it is that you would say to us. And so we ask for your help this morning. We ask that your word, as you say, would be living and active, cutting to our hearts, our souls, our spirits this morning, changing us and transforming us as we hear the incredible news of your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Um, Really quick, before we get started, um, I talked to Judy Edwards before the service, and she wanted me to share um, that this Friday, the 13th, uh, Northridge Elementary, just across the street here, have asked for volunteers um, to help them with a fundraiser. Um, and they need people, again, on Friday the 13th, who can give time between uh, 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. So if there's any way you can help with that, I would ask you to uh, go and talk to Judy Edwards after uh, the service. She'll be in the foyer. You can also sign up for that online. But this is a great, great opportunity that God has given us um, to be a blessing um, in this neighborhood where we believe he's strategically placed us. So I encourage you to go and sign up and be a part of that if you're able. So welcome this morning, everyone's favorite Sunday, right? Spring Forward Sunday. Um, I'm glad you're here, um, and I'm excited about what the Lord has for us this morning. Um, as most of you probably know, we are currently in our series on the five solas. Uh, sola is the Latin word. It means alone. Um, but if you're new to the series, the five solas are five doctrinal statements or affirmations that sum up the heart of the Protestant Reformation. Now, I'm sure all of you perfectly remember your middle school, high school history lessons. Um, so, of course, you would remember that the Reformation was a movement in Europe in the fifth, uh, 16th, 17th centuries 
that sought to correct or reform um, doctrinal error and corruption in the Roman Catholic Church of that time. See, the church at that time was teaching things like, uh, we are saved by grace and by our own merit. We are saved through faith and through our works. We have Jesus Christ as our mediator to the Father, but we also have the Virgin Mary and the saints who also act as intermediaries for us. And our authority is Scripture, but also the Pope and the church councils and so on and so forth. So the five solas were theological statements or slogans that the reformers held to be central to the doctrine of salvation, of how we're saved. And they became rallying cries for the Reformation in response to false teachings in the Catholic Church. And so the five solas are sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, soli deo gloria, and sola scriptura. Now, if you have no idea what that means, again, if you're new to the series, that's because these are phrases that are in Latin, which was the intellectual language of that time. But here's what they mean. Sola gratia means grace alone. We're saved by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. We are saved in and through Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of of God alone and sola scriptura, we know and teach and believe these doctrines based on the authority of scripture alone. So we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the scriptures alone. These are the five solas. Uh, in this morning, we have the opportunity and the privilege of talking about sola fide, which again is Latin for faith alone. Why was faith alone a rallying cry for the reformers? Why was it central to their theology and why is it still important for us as believers today? Um, Those are some of the things we want to think about. And I want to start by saying that since the five solas deal with the question of how we are saved or how we are justified, we'll talk about that term in a minute, um, these are not just doctrines that were central to the Reformation 500 years ago, but these are doctrines that are central to the gospel and therefore must be central to the Christian life. And so these are not secondary issues or secondary doctrines that we can disagree on. For example, how should we baptize people, right? Should we dunk them underwater? Should we sprinkle water over their head, right? Here at Northridge, we practice baptism by immersion, but other churches do it differently. And guess what? That's okay, right? That's a, that's a secondary issue, and it's fine for us to disagree on things like that. Um, but the five solas are doctrines of utmost primary importance to the life of a believer and the life of the church. 
And Martin Luther believed the doctrine of sola fide, faith alone, to be so important, so crucial, that he called it the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. Sola fide means faith alone, and it refers to the biblical truth that we are justified not by our faith and our works, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that word justify or justification, um, it's, it's important that you understand what that means. You're going to see that term um, all throughout Scripture Um, all throughout the New Testament. And so justify or justification is a legal word, and it simply means to be declared righteous in the sight of God. Justification means God looks at you and he declares you to be righteous. That's what it means to be justified. So the question is, well, how do I obtain this declaration of righteousness from a holy God. How do I come to be declared righteous in God's sight? That's an important question. The Roman Catholic Church in the time of the Reformers was teaching that we are justified or declared righteous through faith and through our good works. And so their formula would look like this. Faith plus works together equals or leads to our salvation. So faith in Christ was not enough. You had to do certain prescribed good works, such as confession and penance, in order to inherit eternal life. So think of it like... A bank account. Most all of you have a bank account. And what they essentially were teaching was that every time you sin, every time you sin, every time you do something wrong, it's like making a withdrawal from your account, taking money out. But every good work that you do is like putting money back into your account. So if you sin... You go confess to a priest and he might give you some form of penance. He might give you so many Our Fathers to pray or Hail Marys or praying the rosary or some kind of other good work. And if you faithfully make your confession and do your penance, then you can wipe out your debt and essentially set the scale back to zero. You can get out of the red and back into the black. But the church didn't stop there with their teaching. See, they said that there were some people who had lived throughout history who had done so many good works and done so many good things. Now we're talking about people like Jesus, like the Virgin Mary, like the apostles, like the saints. There were some people that had done so many good works that they had actually built up a surplus of merit or a surplus of righteousness. So these guys had done so many good things that their account was way, way, way in the black. And so when these people died, all of this extra righteousness goes into a heavenly bank. And guess who controls the keys to this heavenly bank? 
Well, the church, of course, the Pope and the church, and they can dip into this heavenly bank whenever they want to. And this, of course, led to the problem, the issue of indulgences, um, which is one of the things that, that Martin Luther and other reformers um, spoke so vehemently against. But the church figured out that they could market and sell grace. So if you sinned and you went to confess to a priest, instead of doing some type of penance, you could buy an indulgence, you could pay your money, and that would count towards your penance. Because after all, giving money to the church was a good work, of course. But that's not all. It didn't stop there. You could actually buy an indulgence for sins you hadn't even committed yet. So for example... If I had really big plans for the weekend, and then it rained, and my plans are ruined, and I'm angry at Bobby, because he's the weather guy, and you've got to be angry at someone, right? And he's not here, so I can make fun of him. That's what he gets for not being here. If I'm angry at Bobby, then I can go purchase my indulgence, and then I can go up to Bobby and slap him in the face or kick him in the shin, and that sin's already covered. I'm good to go. But it didn't stop there. In uh, 1476, Pope Sixtus IV realized that the market for indulgences could also be applied to people who were already dead. And so you could go and purchase an indulgence on behalf of your dead mother or father or grandparent, and you could reduce the amount of time they had to suffer in purgatory, and you could speed them on their way to eternal life. And what kind of jerk would not pay money to help their poor dead mom or dad or grandparent get to heaven more quickly, right? And the people of... The people of Europe in this time, I mean, they were, they were eating this stuff up because it came from the church, it came from the Pope, who stood in the place of Christ, so he claimed. Another way you could earn your salvation, reduce your time in purgatory, was by viewing holy relics. And, of course, most of the time you had to pay money to go and view the relics. But once viewed, you could literally knock thousands and thousands of years off of your time in purgatory. And there were all kinds of relics you could view. You could, you could go and view uh, pieces of the cross that Jesus was crucified on. You could go and view the crown of thorns that were placed on Jesus' head. You could, you could go and view the nails used to pierce the hands and wrists of Jesus. You could, you could view the head of John the Baptist, supposedly. You could, you could view one of the pieces of silver that Judas was betrayed to betray Jesus. The list went on and on and on. Some of my favorites, apparently you could go and view an actual branch from the burning bush that Moses encountered in the desert of Sinai. Now, how they got a hold of that and preserved that is a mystery. But you could supposedly do that. You could also supposedly view a vial of breast milk from the Virgin Mary. Now, how they got that, again, I don't know. And it sounds a little bit fishy to me. But, but listen, listen, this is the world 
that the reformers were living in. So if you were a good religious person and you went to mass and you went to confession and you did your penance and you paid your money and you did all the things that the Pope and the church told you to do, then you too could be saved. And yes, you have to have faith in Christ, but... You also have to do this, 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 this. The list goes on and on and on. And into this theological cesspool comes the cry of the reformers, sola fide, faith alone. We are not saved by our works. Mankind can do nothing to gain right standing before a holy God. Only, only through faith in Jesus Christ and His atoning work for us can we be saved. But you see, the Reformers didn't believe this um, just because they wanted to be different than the Catholic Church. The Reformers believed this and they heralded this and they fought for this and they died for this because they believed That that's what the Word of God, the Scriptures, teaches us. And if you'll remember from a few weeks back, our authority is not a Pope, is not a church council, and is definitely not what we simply feel like should be right. But our authority is the God-breathed, Spirit-infused, living and active Word of God. So as Christians... Our question has to be, what do the scriptures say and teach about how we are justified or declared righteous before God? And so let's look at the scriptures. I want to start back in Galatians 2 um, that Deborah read for us this morning. Galatians 2.16. Paul writes, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, if we really want to understand the book of Galatians, and what Paul is getting at in the book of Galatians, then we have to understand the context of what is happening in the Galatian churches in that time. So as we know, Paul went through the region of Galatia um, in his missionary journeys, and people were saved by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the proclamation of the gospel. But now... Um, years later, false teachers have infiltrated the churches in Galatia, and these false teachers are teaching the people that faith in Christ is not enough for them to be saved. So you have to follow Jewish law. You have to be circumcised. You have to obey all of the different Jewish food laws. You have to observe the Sabbath in this particular way. And on and on and on. So faith in Jesus is not enough. You also have to do all of these other things. Now does that sound familiar? 
right? And the Apostle Paul vehemently and angrily refutes this. He says in Galatians 1 that anyone teaching such a false gospel should be accursed. And he reminds us three times in this one verse, Galatians 2.16, that it is impossible to be justified, to be declared righteous through our own work, through works of the law. And this is why. James chapter 2, verse 10, James says, For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. Whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. So, in order to be counted righteous in the sight of God, based on my own works, I would have to be perfect. Right? We would have to have kept the law perfectly. We would have to be sinless. Just doing more good things than bad things, that's not enough. That doesn't cut it. We would have to be perfect and sinless. And the book of Romans, especially the first three chapters, makes it abundantly clear that none of us have done this or are capable of doing this. Romans 3.10 None is righteous, no, not one. I feel like that verse just kind of speaks for itself. None is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned. Notice the word all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here's what this means. One day... You will stand before God. That's a guarantee. I can't guarantee a lot of things in this life, um, but I can guarantee that. One day, you will stand before God. And so will I. And we will be judged. So one day... We will stand before God and we will be judged. And there are two options. Two options. You can be judged based on what you have done. Or, and this is good news, you can be judged based on what Christ has done. Romans chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. Paul says, For what does the Scripture say? That's always a good question to ask. For what does the Scripture say? And then he's quoting Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, the phrase, it was counted to him as righteousness, that means that the righteousness was given as a gift. So, the point that Paul is making here in Romans 4 is that if Abraham had earned his righteousness through his own works, then there could be absolutely no talk of God gifting righteousness to him. Because he would have earned it. It would have been his due. Think about it like this. 
Um, I get paid for my job every two weeks. Okay? I'm a physical therapist. People come in and I hurt them and they pay me for it. Um, people come in and I get to sit and watch them work out and I get paid for it. It's a great gig. Um, I got really lucky. I love my job. Um, but I work my, you know, 80 plus hours every two weeks and then I get paid for it. Now imagine my boss came to me and said, you know what, David? Um, I've really felt convicted recently that I need to be a more generous person. And so, um, in the spirit of generosity, I have a gift for you. And then she hands me my paycheck. Well, I would certainly be thankful to get my paycheck, as I always am. But I, I think I would probably point out to her that her giving me my paycheck is not an act of generosity. And it's not a gift in any way. Because I worked for and I earned that money. That's rightfully mine for working and doing my job. So Paul is making it clear in Romans 4 that Abraham was declared righteous before God. Not because of any good works that he had done or would do. Not because he earned it in any way, but solely as a gift on the basis of of faith. So again, there are two options. We can work, we can trust in our own works, and we will get exactly what we are due. We will get exactly what we deserve. Or we can trust in the work of Jesus. We can acknowledge that our works count for nothing in our being saved. And Christ will gift His righteousness to us. The Catholic Church was claiming that our works could stand alongside the work of Jesus and contribute to our salvation. But the Word of God is clear. Sola fide. Faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Most of us know these verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God's grace to us is a gift. The faith by which we receive His grace is a gift. And the purpose is that we might boast not in what we have done or could do, but boast solely in what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Now, we cannot talk about faith and works um, without addressing James chapter 2. If you talk to any good, knowledgeable Catholic about this issue, they will be very quick to quote James chapter 2, which says that faith without works is dead. So we need to talk about that. We need to address that. Um, So if you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 14, and I'm going to read through verse 24. These verses are so important for us to understand. It says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith 
but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, now, doesn't that contradict everything that we've just said? And in fact, it doesn't. James is in no way contradicting the theology of Paul. If he were, we would have a really serious problem on our hands. But James is in no way contradicting what the Apostle Paul has said earlier in the New Testament. But to understand this passage in James, we have to understand what faith truly is. You see, James, in this passage we just read, James is not making a distinction between faith and works on one hand and faith alone on the other hand. That's not what he's doing. James is making a distinction between true saving faith on one hand and a mere mental assent to Christian doctrine on the other hand. That's the distinction he's making. What he's saying is, if you think that faith is merely believing that God exists and merely agreeing with Christian doctrine, then that is not true saving faith. And that kind of faith is dead and useless. And he uses the demons as his example. Okay? So I want you to think about this. Got a little test for you. Um, I have some questions for you. I want you to answer me. Do the demons believe that Jesus is God? Yes. Go and read Mark chapter 5. The story of the demon-possessed man and the Gerasenes among the tombstones. And Jesus comes and casts the demons out into the pigs. Um, Go read that story later. Mark chapter 5. Specifically Mark 5 verse 7. Yes, they do. Do the demons believe that Jesus died on the cross? Yes. Do the demons believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Yes, they do. Do demons believe that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father? Yes, they do. And do demons believe that Jesus is coming again? Yes, they do. Do the demons have faith? No. Why is that? 
Why not? They believe everything a Christian should believe, right? And the reason is because saving faith, true faith, means forsaking our own work and trusting solely in the work of Jesus and the promises of the gospel, whereby the scripture tells us we are united with Christ through our faith and we are made new. Because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. How do we become, how do we come to be in Christ? Through faith. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And this is the point that James is making. True faith unites us to Christ and it makes us new. And church, new people act differently. New people are different because they're new. They're not the old person anymore. When I married my wife, I became a new person. And not in like a weird, creepy kind of way. Um, but I, I became a new person because it wasn't just me anymore. Right? Right? The man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. We read in Genesis. Um, life wasn't just me anymore. It wasn't just about me and what I wanted to do. Um, it was about me and her together. And so every decision I make, how I spend my money, how I spend my time, the things that I pursue, the things that I prioritize in my life, it's no longer about me and what's good for me, right? It's about us. What's good for us? What is God doing with us? Right? Being united to my wife changed me. Made me a different person. So if your life today looks no different before you trusted in Christ, then you're not really trusting in Christ. Right? If, if I am not producing the fruit of good works to the glory of God, then how can I claim to be a new creation? A.W. Tozer puts it like this. He says, Plain horse sense ought to tell us that anything that makes no change in the man who professes it makes no difference to God either. And it is an easily observable fact that for countless numbers of persons, the change from no faith to faith makes no actual difference in the life. And church, that's the kind of faith that James says is dead and useless. That kind of faith does not justify because it's not actually faith. But true, genuine faith will always, always result in the fruit of good works. So back to Ephesians 2, right? We already read, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Verses 8 and 9. And then in verse 10, Paul writes, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Jesus, he doesn't save you 
because of your good works, he saves you for good works. Right? So, um, I come to church basically every Sunday. That's important to me. So unless, unless I'm traveling or I'm sick, I'm here every week. Um, but I don't show up in the hope that God will be pleased with me and hopefully save me. I'm here every week because Jesus saved me. And as a believer, as a part of the body of Christ, what could be more important and more worthy of my time than investing in the body of Christ, in the bride of Christ, and being a part of the church? What could be a better use of my time than that? Every week, every month, I give money to the church, hopefully generously. But I don't give money to the church so that hopefully God will be pleased with me and save me. I give to the church because Jesus has already saved me. And as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, what better use of my money could there be than investing into the work, into the kingdom of God, into things that God is already doing? Right? So Jesus does not save us because of our good works. He saves us for good works. As the saying goes, if you like little sayings like this, good works are the fruit, not the root. The Catholic Church was saying that faith and works together equals salvation. But the gospel tells us that faith alone leads to salvation which produces good works in the life of a believer. We don't do good works because we want or we hope that Jesus will save us. We do good works because Jesus has given us a new heart. He's made us new. So, why does this matter so much? So, you know, we believe in faith alone and, you know, my Catholic friends, they believe in in faith and works together. But what's the big difference? Well, as always, I'm glad you asked. Um, and, and listen, we, we, could, we could say a lot here. We could preach a whole other sermon just on that question. But I want to leave you this morning um, just with three final thoughts. If we believe a doctrine of justification through works, then number one, the gospel goes from being good news to being bad news. Um, And secondly, the purpose of my life fundamentally changes from glorifying Christ to glorifying myself. And finally, instead of justification, I get condemnation if I'm trusting in my works. So, to the first point, um, every religion known to man emphasizes what man must do to be saved. Catholicism, Mormonism, Buddhism, Islam, on and on and on. It's, it's about what you have to do to appease a holy and a righteous God. And what makes the gospel so glorious, so unique, so good, is that it is not primarily about what we have to do, but it's primarily about what Christ has done. And the second we try to take Christianity and make it about what we have to do in order to be saved, it's no longer good news. 
it becomes dead religion and it produces either false assurance like the Pharisees who thought, man, they had it together. And Jesus looked at him and said, you're dead inside. Produces false assurance or it produces total despair. Like poor old Martin Luther before he was saved who spent every waking moment of his life punishing himself beating himself, depriving himself of every earthly comfort and racking his brains hours and hours a day to think of every tiny little sin that he could possibly confess so that hopefully maybe at the end of his life he had done just enough to inherit eternal life. And church, that is not good news. But faith alone matters because faith alone is good news for sinners it's good news second um you and i were created to glorify god isaiah 43 7 first corinthians 10 31 you can look at those later if you'd like to but we were created to boast in nothing except jesus christ That's our purpose. So the Christian life is a life that looks to Jesus and trusts in Jesus for all things. All things. And the work of the Holy Spirit then is to help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and not on ourselves. Charles Spurgeon, as he usually did, said it really, really well. This is what he says. He says, it is ever the Holy Spirit's work... To turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this. For he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. And church, faith, faith is looking to Christ instead of looking to ourselves. Believing that we can obtain right standing before God and and be declared righteous before God through our works is a turning away from Christ and a turning inward to ourselves. And guys, that is the absolute opposite of what faith is. And isn't that exactly what happened to Adam and Eve when they rebelled in the garden? They wanted eternal life, but they wanted it on their own terms. They turned from loving and trusting God to loving and trusting in themselves. Theologian and author Michael Reeves said it like this, speaking of the rebellion in the garden. He said, Eve was turning inward to love only herself, and thus she was turning from the image of God into the image of the devil. Justification by works is a rejection of the image of God. Faith alone matters because faith alone is what we were created for. And finally, 
The difference between faith alone and faith plus works is the difference between justification and condemnation. And it bears repeating. You and I will be judged based on works. We will be judged either based on our own works or based on the work of Jesus. Faith plus works is a contradiction because faith is a renunciation of our own works and a clinging to the work of Jesus Christ. Through faith, we are united to Jesus and his perfect work is gifted to us, to you and me. And that's why Paul can say with absolute confidence, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1. Uh, President Trump was asked a while back if he has ever asked God for forgiveness for his actions. Uh, This is what he said. He said, I'm not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I don't think so. I think if I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. And church, please, please, please hear me on this. I don't say that to disparage or mock the president. I don't say that as a political statement. I don't say that to try and influence how you vote in November. Um, But my concern is that so many of us in the church think of the Christian life in exactly that way. Well, I'm just going to try harder to make it right. And listen... Listen, listen, listen. If you are trusting in yourself to try to make things right, then God's proclamation over you will be guilty. But if you are putting your faith, your trust in Jesus, in what He has done, then God's verdict over you will be righteous. And faith alone matters because faith alone is the difference between eternal judgment and eternal life. Um, let me close with this story. We our, our family was hiking together last month. Um, and, uh, you know, we were at a place with a, a bunch of rocks where the kids could climb and have fun. And there was also um, a lot of water around. And in, um, in a few places, the water was actually uh, quite deep. And so... Naturally, as a good father, I told my kids, hey, be really, really careful around the water because it's February and this water is nasty and I don't want to have to jump in and save you. So please be very careful. And as those of you with kids can imagine, their response is like, "Ah, whatever, dad, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll be careful, you know, don't worry about us, you know, how kids are. Um, and literally a few minutes later, we're out on a little rock kind of surrounded by water, you know, chasing after some frogs. And I didn't see exactly what happened, but Jude, my six year old, um, he slips uh, and he falls in the water and, and it wasn't shallow. Um, and, uh, and when he fell in the water immediately, you know, he starts to, Try to swim. But, you know, it's February, it's cold. 
He's wearing all his clothes. He's got his heavy hiking boots on. Um, and the harder and harder he tried to swim and get himself out, he just started to get pushed farther away from the rock and sink deeper and deeper. And, and there was a moment, and I'll never forget this, where, you know, as he was, as he was struggling in the water, just this, this look of sheer and utter panic. And, uh, he just reached out. I don't even remember if he said anything. He just kind of cried out, but he reached out toward his dad. Help me. Please save me. Um, and like any father would do, of course, I jumped in the nasty, slimy, freezing water and I grabbed my son and I pulled him out and I set his feet back on the rock. And listen, church, that is what faith is. That's what faith looks like. The harder and harder you and I try to swim and get our way out, the deeper and deeper we sink. But if we'll just reach out and cry out to our Father for help, He sent Jesus to jump in the nasty, freezing, slimy water with us and lift us out and set our feet on the rock as the psalmist tells us, right? I waited, I waited patiently for the Lord. He reached down, he pulled me out of the miry pit. He set my feet upon the rock. He gave me a firm place to stand. And if we'll just call out to our Father, He will give us a firm place to stand. I think that's what faith looks like. So, as we come to the Lord's table this morning um, to celebrate communion together, we come as an act and a declaration of faith in Jesus and what Jesus has done. We don't come to the table saying, God, God, look what I've done. Please accept me. I hope it's good enough, but we come to the table saying, look what Jesus has done for me. Look at his body broken for me. Look at his blood shed and poured out for me so that I could be forgiven. So communion, the Lord's table, is for anyone and everyone who has put their faith in Jesus alone to save them to redeem them, to deliver them. And if you haven't done that this morning, then this isn't for you, but this is our prayer, that today would be the day that you stop trusting in your own work, that you stop trusting in being a good person, that you stop trusting in what you can do to make God happy, and that you start trusting wholeheartedly in the work of a Savior who loves you with all of his heart. Amen? Let me ask our communion workers if they would come up. And I'm going to read to you the verses in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, 
This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you that you sent Jesus to do for us what we could never, ever, ever do for ourselves. Thank you that you sent Jesus to give us rest so that we could enter into your rest. Jesus, thank you that you lived a perfectly obedient life in our place. Thank you that you were perfectly righteous. And if we will put our trust, our faith in you, then you give us your righteousness as a gift. And the Father looks at us and declares righteous. Thank you for your body, your broken body, and your shed blood that makes it possible. And Father, I pray that not a person would leave this building this morning without having put their complete faith, complete trust in you and in you alone. May we be a church here at Northridge Life that doesn't look to our own works or what we can do to please you. Um, But where good works are flowing out of our lives continually because we've been saved by grace through faith. Thank you for the opportunity to come to your table and, and remember and celebrate what you have done. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You guys would stand, and uh, I'm going to read a benediction over you. You place your hands in a receiving posture. This is Romans 3, 23 to 25, which says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. May we be a people of faith who look not to ourselves, but look to our Savior, our Redeemer, who has done the ultimate work on our behalf. You guys have a blessed week. We'll see you next Sunday.